Welcome to Who Cares What's the Point, a podcast about the mind for people who think. And this is season two, so welcome to that too. If you have been a previous listener, welcome back. If this is new for you, please enjoy the show and have a look at our back catalogue. We've got 10 episodes uh, and shows for season one, which you might want to browse through. There's some real crackers in there, if I don't say so myself. My name is Saab Johal. I am the host and producer of Who Cares What's the Point? Uh, and you can follow me at Saab or the show at WCWTP on Twitter or find us on Facebook or look up whocareswhatsthepoint.com. I'm not going to delay any longer. I'm going to tell you all about the show this week. This week, I am interviewing Emeritus Professor Michael Corbalis, who is a renowned psychologist internationally and here in New Zealand for sure. Uh, he uh, has recently won the Rutherford Medal from the Royal Society of New Zealand for his work on asymmetry of the brain, but also his work on language. And that's what I'm focusing on today in our interview. Now, one view of language is that uh, it emerged as a single sort of big bang event in one of our ancestors. And from that point on, uh, the linguistic com- capability and uh, ability for the human species somehow exploded from that point. Another idea of which Michael is a keen supporter of is that uh, somehow gesture uh, and our um, capacity to uh, position ourselves and move in spatial habitats underpins language, but also this idea of mental time travel. So Join me as I speak with uh, Emeritus Professor Michael Corbalis uh, in this week's show. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Mike. Uh, it's a real privilege and honour to have you have you here. And I thought we'd perhaps um, start with your um, stream of work on these uh, precursors to language. And maybe you could tell us a bit about how you um, came across this uh, interest of yours in the first place. Well, I guess it began really with an interest in brain asymmetry and handedness and the sort of relation between the two. The two. Um, of course, the brain is asymmetrical in two striking ways. One is the representation of language in the left hemisphere and the other is handedness. And I guess that led me to the idea that there ought to be a link and that maybe uh, handedness has, holds the key to where language came from. And that sort of led me to the idea of the gestural theory of the origins of language. Um, so, um, so language begins in the hand, not the mouth, so to speak. Yes, because there are um, competing theories around where language comes from. Well, yes, I think most people take it for granted that language probably evolved from animal calls. In other words, it was vocal to begin with. So I sort of then began to develop the alternative idea that really it probably started with manual gesture and that uh, vocalization came later. Um, and I think, you know, the, the opinion is probably about even now, I would guess. There are still people who will insist to me that language must have come out of animal calls. Um, but uh, so I've been trying to build the case for gesture for some time now. And even within the idea um, that uh, language came from animal calls, there's even um, some difference there around how this may have come about, whether it was a gradual evolutionary process or whether there was almost like some kind of big event that led to this sudden development of language. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I 
also find myself trying to sort of counter the, the Chomsky notion, or in fact the biblical notion, if you like, that language was suddenly bestowed on us as a kind of gift. Um, so that lang the, there are no precursors to language. Language sort of happened. And even Chomsky's quite explicit about that. He's got the idea that language was um, appeared suddenly within the last 100,000 years as a singular event, even in a singular person. Uh, the Bible calls that person Adam, but uh, Chomsky, with tongue-in-cheek, perhaps calls that person Prometheus, as though this, uh, there was suddenly a bestowal of language on the single individual. So partly my message is Darwinian, try, trying to argue that language probably evolved gradually, and the gestural argument is part of that, <clears throat> part of the argument that it was a gradual evolution, not, not a sudden emergence. So if we just um, perhaps focus in in part of this story is at a, at a neuropsychological level and how the hippocampus is really critical in understanding space and our relationship to space. Um, and how, how does the hippocampus fit into this idea that there may be a gestural underpinning to what this vocal language that we engage in? Well, really, the, the um, mental time travel argument, the hippocampal argument, is a little bit separate. Uh -huh. um, the idea that what language evolved for, whether it's vocal language or gestural language, language uh, evolved to be able to communicate about the non-present. Um, you know, what happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow, or even things like, you know, things that are in your head, experiences. So that's a somewhat separate argument, I think. Um, the, the hippocampal argument. It's known for a long time that the hippocampus is a cognitive map. Um, so um, there was a, a famous book written, I think, in the 1980s um, called The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map. So if you do, even in the rat, if you take recordings from single cells in the hippocampus, they seem to be, um, they seem to represent where the animal is located in space. Okay, so um, you, it, it's almost like a GPS system, the hippocampus. Um, so it also transpired that if you take an animal out of a maze, it keeps on giving recordings for locations where it has been and even where it might go. So I think it's now understood the hippocampus is kind of mapping out um, past trajectories in space and, and future ones. And that, I think, is in a way the, the basis of mental time travel in humans. So we also know from hippocampal uh, recordings in humans through fMRI uh, that when we think about a past event or a future event, the hippocampus lights up in very specific ways. So that has to do, I think, with the role of language in um, well, this provides the basis, of, if you like, for experiences that are not involved in the present. And language has emerged in order for us to tell other people about that. So More really people with our travels in Europe or whatever. So really, it's back to the sort of common sense idea that language evolved from a basic need to communicate. And that communication is about perhaps where we may have found food in the past or where it is that we may want to go in the future, um, depending upon, you know, um, our experiences and our plans for the future enables us, as you say, this, this time travel. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's that's what language is really all about. 
communicating about things that are not present. I mean, if you want to communicate about things in, in the present, you can point to them <laughs> and share experiences. But once you get away from the present, then you need a system of communication. Tell people what you did yesterday or you're going to do tomorrow. And, and I think that probably emerged in a kind of gestural form of communication rather than a vocal one, because vocalization is not very good at that, if you think about it. Uh, vocalization doesn't really uh, easily address locations in space or locations or things that happened at different points in time. Uh, whereas um, gesture and, and the use of space through gesture is a more obvious way to do it. So what are the sorts of things that are a prerequisite then in order to be able to communicate through gesture our experiences of the past and then the future? If language, as in a vocalized language, doesn't necessarily seem to be necessary for that and that can be achieved through gesture, what other things would have to be in place for that to be effective, for that to work? Um, well, I think, you know, just having experience of, of space is one. Uh, I mean, that's the first requisite because that's what you're trying to communicate about. And I think uh, the ability to sort of uh, construct space in your head and then use gesture to communicate is, is a natural way to go about it. Um, sign language is a good, a good illustration of, of, I think, what is necessary. Um, people using sign language will actually construct kind of virtual spaces in front of them where they locate objects and, and then point to them in a virtual fashion, right? So I think that sort of system grew naturally from the understanding of space itself and the use of gesture to address that space. And then you can begin to tell stories by constructing uh, virtual objects in front of you that the other person, the person you're communicating with can see. Uh, so just the use of space, the understanding of space, and the role of gesture and uh, manipulation in space uh, kind of puts the story together. And as you're talking, I'm put in mind of um, children and in their development and how they learn to communicate quite early on through gesture if you're sensitive enough to, to, to pick it up. Some of them are quite obvious, but some of them can be quite quite sensitive um you'd have to be quite sensitive to pick it up um what are your thoughts around that around because this is often you know way pre-verbal any kind of um, articulation of language that children are able to communicate in this way yeah i mean i think um development uh, kind of maps onto evolution uh, kids naturally begin by communicating with pointing uh young kids well it's i think they understand language through pointing before they understand it through words so they will point to things uh, to communicate their interest in something, um, and that sort of becomes uh, that sort of precedes the actual naming of things with words. And of course, kids with sign language, uh, kids brought up in a sign language environment, actually babble in gesture. Uh, so it's much more natural and earlier, I think, to communicate through pointing and using your body than it is through using sound. So one of the other things that we think about with children as well, and some of the things that you've talked about, is this idea of theory of mind. So in order to be able to effectively communicate with someone, we, are, we have to have some idea as to what's going on in, in their minds as well. That's absolutely critical, I think. Uh, so language is, is really, um, people say it's um, 
underrepresented. I mean, you, you, language is hopeless, really. Uh, it doesn't work unless you know what another person is thinking. So really what you're doing is sort of um, uh, elaborating on their own thoughts by, by giving kind of hints. So language is very seldom fully explicit. It's, it's underdetermined. So I think you've got to know what's going on in the other person's mind in order to even um, generate a meaningful sentence that they will understand. Uh, I think it's probably easier with respect to gesture um, because then you are directly accessing space. But even when we're speaking, I think we have to uh, have an intuitive understanding of what's in the other person's mind. Like I can uh, maybe talk about, uh, I can say to you, hey, that was a great game yesterday, wasn't it? Uh, I'm talking about cricket in case you don't watch it. <laughs> but I'm still thinking, is it the women's cricket or the men's cricket he's talking about? <laughs> well, I was actually watching the men's cricket, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we, we normally talk in a kind of telegraph ease. I mean, we don't sort of say explicitly everything we want to uh, communicate about. So I've just got to say that's a great game. And I'm you, what's going through your mind, I think, is images of that game. So we've got to have this sort of communal imagery, this communal sort of understanding uh, that lies behind what we're trying to communicate. So, so the language itself just scratches the surface. Yeah, and there's an interesting uh, examples that you've written about and, and quoted other people where people who know each other quite well can just say a few words and there is a, an implicit awakening of a shared understanding that comes exactly. up with those words. Yeah, a couple of grunts will do it. <laughs> so how does gesture fit into that? Uh, how, how does it um, underpin that? Or um, how do we think differently about how gesture might achieve that? Well, I think simply that gesture does it more na naturally um, and more obviously somehow. Um, you know, a shrug, a raise of the eyebrows or whatever, all of these things um, are kind of... Uh, they're almost like sentences, um, in, but, they're, but they're more direct. So somehow you've got, to, you've got to understand the words of a language in order to use spoken language to do these things. But gesture is more natural, isn't it? Uh, although, you know, different, um, different cultures gesturate somewhat differently, but I think there's an awful lot of shared gesture that simply illustrates the naturalness of gesture as distinct from the naturalness of vocalization. Because I guess you have the different, the many different languages that are spoken where, you know, some of them share common roots and many of them do not. And I guess part of that is um, because of this kind of um, regional and physio physical separation, which meant that languages developed differently. But partly, um, I guess there are reasons why languages are quite different from each other as well. Um, and it's interesting that you're saying that perhaps there is a perhaps more of a shared common core within a gestural set across the human species. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, at one time it was thought that all sign languages were the same. I mean, there was just one sign language, which that's nonsense too. Uh, sign languages differ, but I think people who sp who use different sign languages communicate much better than people who use different uh, spoken languages. I mean, there are something like 6,000 different uh, spoken languages, and most of them are mutually incomprehensible. Uh, whereas I think 
um, people who have different sign languages communicate moderately well, and, and we all resort to sign language anyway, if we're in a, a country where they don't speak the language that you speak. Um, my favorite story is trying to uh, ask for a, um, a bottle opener in Russia. The only way I could do that was sort of mimicking the idea of opening a bottle with a bottle opener and uh, pretending to glug it down. They understood that instantly, but I'd never been able to get the idea across using any kind of spoken language. And as you're speaking, I'm, I'm sat there thinking about um, Washoe, um, the the uh, primate. I, was Washoe a chimpanzee? I think I seem to remember Washoe was a chimpanzee. Um, communicating, was, yeah. yeah, communicating yeah. in this kind of um, sign language or, or, or pointing to to symbols that they've been taught to use. In what way does that map on to our human experience and understanding? How much do we know about that? Well, I think you know the language that was taught to um, Kanzi in particular and, and and Washoe, I think, was based in part on sign language. Uh, on the grounds that that was sort of a natural way to communicate. Uh, they, of course, early on had tried to teach chimps to speak, but that got nowhere at all. And um, I suppose I'm not quite sure I can answer that question very well. I mean, they, they also use symbols um, on a kind of giant uh, iPad kind of thing with Kanzi and communicate by pointing to the symbols. So it's sort of natural to point of things, to point to things, to draw attention to them, and uh, and then use them as communicative symbols. And did they show evidence that they could um, mentally time travel as well in the way that they um, use those symbols, uh, pointing at symbols and also um, their gestures? Yes, um, I think there's. Uh, it's not very good evidence, I don't think, but sometimes. Sometimes uh, Kanzi, Kanzi is, is the champion, I think. Um, he was a bonobo, actually, not not um, not not a chimp. But he will sort of point to things uh, and then lead uh, lead the, uh, the the person, the keeper, as it were, to somewhere else in space where something is hidden. So that suggests that when he points to the symbol representing what it is that's hidden, he has in mind having hidden it, um, you know, a day earlier or something like that. Um, so there are there are sort of they're a little bit anecdotal, I think, um, cases of communication by chimps using gesture that refer to um, something that happened a day before, or something that's about to happen. You know, I'm about to take you to where I know something is. Yes, uh, I guess one of the things I'm thinking about the difference perhaps between those um, gestures that um, primates and humans may make and and language is that perhaps um, people think of or conceptualize language as having many different building blocks that we can construct in many different ways to produce complex ideas and long strings of narrative that, that, that come together to enable us to tell stories. And through these stories, we communicate who we are, where we've been, who we might be in the future, and how we relate to others. Um, how, how does that idea that language is unique in, in enabling us uh, to do that verbal utterization of, of language, how, do, how does that um, map onto the idea that perhaps gestures can do this too, or perhaps gestures were the, um, the, the genesis of this? Well, <laughs> um, 
I think the sort of crunch question here is how much stories depend on language and how much stories depend on what is being communicated. It may be that chimps and even rats have stories in their heads but don't have the ability to communicate them. So one of the precursors then is having this sort of mental time travel, this record in your head of things that have happened. You know, this is where the hippocampal recordings come in. It looks like the the, the rat can replay in its hippocampus uh, a trajectory that it undertook in a maze a short while ago. And that in a sense is a kind of primitive story. And it's also known from some of the rat experiments, amazingly, hippocampal experiments, that these locations are also associated with smells or with, with simple happenings. So in a way, that's a precursor to a story, but it's a story in the head. It's not a story that's told. So at some point in, in evolution, I think it became adaptive not just to have records of the past or plans for the future or things, you know, things that you're going to do um, or things that you're going to relive in your mind, it became adaptive to, to, to communicate them. So I think um, stories are part um, what's happening in your mind, but they're also part the communication of, of that. Now, the sort of uh, Chomskyan view of language is that you need the, the generative aspect it comes from language itself. What I'm trying to argue is that the generative language is there as a precursor to language. The generative aspect is the experience itself, the memories, the plans, and all the rest of it. So uh, you've got this stuff in your head, you want to tell somebody else about it. I think the natural way to do it is was probably through gesture, because then you can link directly to space by the use of pointing and by the use of sort of mimicking shapes with your hands and movements of your hands and so forth. Okay, am I being clear? I think so. And I think taking on from your ideas, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have these gestures uh, that, that you put forward and then somehow um, through need or process of becoming familiar that these gestures became um, minimized or, or, or shrunken. So you didn't, didn't have to go through the whole gesture because people were familiar enough with like, okay, if you do that, then I know you mean all of this instead. Right. I mean, gestures in a way are more elaborate than they need to, need to be probably. Um, and if you're going to, I mean, it's, it's to, to mime a story is uh, quite an effort. It's, it uh, takes energy, uh, takes movement. It's probably inefficient. So if you can kind of cut it down, uh, minimize it, uh, you can still create the story um, by using uh, much simpler devices like words, spoken words. Um, so you have to have a system whereby you can map uh, your communicative device onto the story you're trying to tell. Uh, but the important thing is the story itself. That's where all the generativity is, that's where all the complexity is, and so forth. And that's why language itself is quite complex. But it, the complexity really derives from the story and not from the language. That's where I think I part company from, from Chomsky. Okay, so the story then becomes the motivator to communicate because I've, yes, exactly. I've, got, I've got something to communicate about. And yeah. then the vocal utterance, the language, becomes a shortcut for the extended mime that tells yep. the story of my physical relationship to this experience that I've had. Exactly. 
So you're using these funny little things called words and sentences to try and sort of get the other person's mind uh, moving in the same direction as your own. Right, right. Mm. So, uh, you know, as, you're, as we're talking, I don't know why, but Donald Trump has come into my head. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about his gestural use and his use of, of language and this idea that actually he has a very, um, how should we say, unique uh, take on uh, events and uh, things that may have happened in, in his recounting. Um, and he is very noticeable in his gestural use when you see him talk. He has particular ways of, of being uh, in his physical self while he's talking. Um, what do we know about um, how our nonverbal communication maps onto our verbal communication, given your point of view? That both of these can be well, happening I've at never, the same time. Yeah, I'm never that convinced that of the, the sharp distinction between verbal and nonverbal, uh, because people gesture all the time when they speak anyway, and I think it's 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 part of the language itself. Um, so you know, we, we we make use of shrugs and pointings and uh, and waving our arms around which is actually sort of part of the communication system. I, I don't think there's a sharp distinction between what's verbal and what's nonverbal. Perhaps to some extent our gestures add emotion that's not part of the language, but I think um, uh, the fact that we gesture all the time as we're talking, uh, I think is derives from the fact that language probably was gesture initially in the first place. It's interesting how we socialize our children. You know, often you hear people saying things like, use your words. Yeah, you must point. Yes, yes. Some, some, some cultures disallow pointing, I think. It's very rude to point. That's right. And mm. you use a, hand, a different sort of a hand gesture instead. So uh, somehow we've been taught, perhaps in, in different cultures, uh, in, in, in different degrees, uh, taught to sort of suppress their pointings and their movements and use words. Uh, but I think in a way, the pointing is natural. Yes. Um, and, and at one, you know, at some point in evolution, it was probably more pointing than words, than, than vocalizations. So if it makes, if it doesn't make sense really to separate out this, this idea of this um, division between nonverbal and verbal behavior, actually they're all part of the same system and you, to understand people, you, you look at that in a coherent way, a cohesive way. Um, what, what's the point of, of um, this line of thought? Um, who, who should care about this, Michael? Uh, when we're thinking about the implications of what you're saying, um, how does this move us forward in, in, in different ways? How, how should we be thinking about communicating with people, with each other? Um, no, that's a, that's a trick question. Uh, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think simply recognizing the importance of of gesture and the sort of total communication system is is, is important. Whether it's a, whether it's important to consider whether we should suppress it or not. I mean, our, our culture perhaps does suppress uh, the the kind of gestural component. I mean, there are big cultural differences here for a start. I mean, the Italians are, I guess, are famous for um, for gesturing as they as they speak. Um, so gesture is a very important part of, of the culture in uh, Naples, I think. Uh, there's something about sort of buttoned up uh, perhaps English culture that sort of suppresses uh, gesture. Um, but I don't know that I have a kind of moral position on this in particular. It's just there, isn't it? It's something that some cultures do and some don't. Mm. 
It is. It is. I, it is just there. It's. Um, it's an interesting. It would be an interesting question to understand a little bit more about why some uh, tended to. I don't know. If suppress is the right word, but discourage. Uh, perhaps gestures as opposed to language, or whether one is seen as superior to the other. Yeah, I think I think we're sort of we're perhaps taught to think that the spoken language is superior and and the mark of sophistication and and um, all the rest of it. Um, I think sign language, for example, for a long time got a very bad rap. Um, as though it was somehow crude and it was not properly language. I mean, one of the things that's come out of the last 50 years or so is that sign language is real. It's a real language. It has grammar, it has sophistication, and it can be quite beautiful. So I think there's partly uh, a kind of prejudice against gesture, as though people who gesture are not, are not um, you know, not, not using language properly. I, I think they probably are. And I think we have to sort of try and understand language in that broader context, uh, that, that um, gesture is a, a natural part of spoken language, of our own language, but it's also the, it's all of sign language. So I think just the recognition that this is what language is, rather than some sort of uh, extremely complex, high-level uh, thing that's, um, that's, that's purely spoken that, and that just uses, uh, just uses spoken words. So I think that's, that's part of the deal. Um, trying to sort of um, see language as broader than just the rather pretentious thing that linguists have built up. Uh, I got a bit of a thing about linguists, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that there's a sort of snobbery associated with with uh, with, with speech, as though um, embellishing it with with um, gestures is kind of crude and um, unsophisticated. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was just uh, thinking about where we started off this conversation. And yeah, goodness knows where all that came from. <laughs> no, I think it's been a really fascinating conversation, a little bit wide ranging. But um, I'll just bring you back to the idea that you were saying that perhaps it's about 50-50 at the moment uh, as to uh, where people have uh, the degree of support as to whether people think that we have this gestural basic underpinning of where language comes from. Um, or as a base of language, uh, whereas comp as opposed to this kind of big bang, one particular moment in the hundred, last hundred thousand years where this one individual came along that was able to do this, and every all language has come from that. Mm. Where, where where is this debate at the moment? Where in what direction is it moving in in that um, stream? I when you, one gets a bit sort of biased by uh, you know the people you talk to, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I I, uh, I go to conferences and I, I do this stuff and I get, uh, probably most people are reasonably sympathetic, but then I sort of realize there's a bunch of hardcore people out there who won't buy it at all. Um, one of the problems is the notion that switching from a, a visual mode to an auditory one just seems too extreme. You know, going from, from, uh, from sight to sound just doesn't seem plausible. Um, so that's probably the, the, the most compelling argument that somehow in the course of evolution we, we shifted from a visual modality to an auditory one. Uh, so some people simply can't buy that in, in, in neurophysiological or neurological terms. Um, so then I have to sort of argue that in fact there's a very close connection between what we do with our hands and what we do with our mouths. Um, so that 
the part of my argument is that speaking itself is gestural. What we are doing is we're making gestures with our mouths and with our larynxes, with our tongues. Uh, and there's a natural connection between the hand and the mouth anyway. It comes from eating, among other things. So that really it's not so much a switch from, um, from vision to audition, from sight to sound, as it is um, a, a kind of blending from one form of gesture to another. Gesture that was with the hands and face, but then increasingly became the face and less the hands. So that's, but that's, that's one of the critical uh, questions, I think. Why would, why would language shift so radically from a visual system to an auditory one? And so that's one of the sort of snags, I think, in the gestural argument. And speaking as a clinician, and I guess this is why um, I thought it would be um, good to talk to you, is that this resonates with me in that I remember as a as a young sort of like learner, well, not so young, but as a learner cl- clinician, one of the things that I got fed back on was that I um, tended to use the whole of my body to communicate and that I was, when I was in a clinical situation, I was somehow switching this off and I was becoming very verbal. And this was affecting my effectiveness as a clinician. Um, some of my supervisors who would sit in with me would notice this. So there is some kind of value, particularly when we're talking about talking therapies, that is given just to talking. And I was starting to change who I was because I was prioritizing talking, whereas actually if I was more my allowed I allowed myself to bring a, a bit more of the whole of me to any kind of interaction in, in the clinical setting, then I became more effective. So I wonder how much, you know, I do screen myself, you know, and, and be very meta about it and stick to language, whereas actually I might be much more of an effective communicator if I um, let go of that a little bit. Yeah, there's something a little bit buttoned up about um, speech, isn't there, really? Uh, you know, it, it, it happens in the mouth. It's all, it's, it's, I, I like to think of it, speech is kind of minimalist. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's miniaturization. So it buttons you up, right? Whereas if you, if you use gesture along with your speech, uh, which is perfectly natural, you're, you're, you're revealing more, you're perhaps getting at more, aren't you? I mean, people talk about this as nonverbal communication as though it's separate. Uh, and that, you know, you should watch what people do. But I, I think it's part of the communication process in general. So by just restricting yourself to, to speech, you're kind of buttoned up and slightly closed down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that probably also has implications for how we hear other people, too, by only hearing the vocalization rather than attending to the whole. Rather than, as you say, I'm not bifurcating this and that, um, I'm looking at the whole and experiencing a person as the whole rather than just their speech or just their gestures, then I'm getting a different picture. There are a number of people, by the way, uh, who are kind of argue that gesture was gesture and speech were there all the time. I mean, my argument is that it began with, with, with manual gesture and sort of became increasingly kind of miniaturized and, and located in the mouth. Uh, but there are others who argue quite plausibly, I think, sometimes that it always was this way. 
Um, in other words, uh, there was vocalization and gesture, and they belong naturally together. Okay. So I, that's one of the arguments I sometimes get. It's not gesture first at all. It's that the gesture was always there and, and uh, always will be. And what, what, what's their premise for that argument, for that they both existed at the same time they always have? It's real well. It's not a very good argument in some sense. I think they base it primarily on the, the on um, studies of people gesturing while they're speaking, and the close connection in terms of timing between the way the hands move and the way uh, vocal utterances are made. Um, uh, I, I don't think they they really look back at what uh, chimpanzee communication is like because clearly in a chimpanzee you can't teach a chimp to talk, but you can teach it to gesture. Mm. Uh, and all of the success with chimpanzee communication uh, has been uh, related to gesture and not to vocalization. Uh, so I think they're really uh, trying to sort of extrapolate backwards for what they see people doing in, um, in, in natural speech using gesture. Uh, and I, so I try to I try to educate the, the people who argue with me on those grounds uh, on the basis of what, what we think what you can do with a chimpanzee. So I guess I'm um, just thinking about our, our conversation and just uh, winding this up a little bit now. Um, I guess one of the things that I learned from reading some of your work, Mike, is that uh, perhaps language isn't as special as we think it is. Perhaps it's um, the experience, at least the internal experience of what the motivator for language is, maybe more common than we think. Absolutely. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm, I'm trying to argue against the, the sort of specialness of language, that it comes out of natural human behavior, natural things like uh, memory, like uh, time travel, uh, like bodily movement. Um, so what I'm indeed trying to argue for is uh, evolutionary continuity, that this, is, this, this has all got to do with really basically with animals that move. Uh, and animals that move have, have experiences in time and experiences in place. And gradually, I think, over the course of uh, the millennia, uh, we've developed ways to communicate this with each other. But it's still present there. I mean, you, people have done, you know, studies of chimpanzees in the wild. They sort of tell stories and they play, you know, animals play. Uh, they, they generate sequences of events. Um, they communicate them to some extent through movements, their own movements and their own gestures. There was probably a bit of discontinuity with things like bipedalism, which which kind of frees up the body a bit more, for, for that whereby you can get more elaborate kinds of communications of what's in your mind. Hmm. But I'm not, you know, I don't buy the argument that all this happened a couple of uh, hundred thousand years ago. That's I think I think it's sort of there in in animal behavior and in particular in primate behavior, because uh, primates are sort of uh, fairly um, capable of making expressive movements with their hands and bodies uh, more than say a cow is. So I, I kind of like to see this, as you say, it's a sort of it's been there all the time, really. Uh, we've we've kind of I guess uh, built it up to a fairly sophisticated degree in our own species. Although we don't really know much about what happened over the last six billion years, uh, but you know, uh, since um, humans and chimpanzees went their different ways, 
But the notion that it all happened, you know, 100,000 years ago seems to me to be uh, fairly, um, uh, uh, you know, minimal. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think that's a good point at which to, to finish, Mike. <laughs> is, is, is there anything that you wanted to say that we haven't had a chance to or anything that you're thinking, well, oh, I'm not so sure about that? Well, I'm not really terribly sure about any of it, to be honest. I mean, I keep, you know, you keep trying to make the case and then people sort of have uh, different arguments. But um, uh, I think there's a huge sort of uh, – it's partly sort of religion. I think it's, it's all got to do with the notion or the um, attempts to prove that humans are somehow special. Mm. And I think that's kind of important because we like to put down animals – we like to put down anything that's kind of not not sophisticated in the sense that that humans human languages. So we kind of use right. I mean, from the Bible on, really, language is sort of the definition of what is special about humans. The one thing that we can be sure that we seem to, or we think we're sure about, that we seem to do differently is is talk. Uh, I mean, it goes back to Descartes. It goes back to the Bible. It goes back to language being sort of uh, given to Adam as a special, you know, privilege. And so I think that kind of overrides a hell of a lot of this. Um, you know, the notion that that the language makes us human, other animals don't have it, that makes us superior. It's probably got to do uh, a lot with the fact, with sort of a, a kind of guilt over the way we treat other animals. You know, we eat them and we ride on them and we exploit them in goodness knows how many ways. Uh, so we have to have the notion that we are superior, that they don't have, you know, um, feelings and all the rest of it. So I think that that kind of overrides the whole thing in a way. And language is right at, is right at the center of it. It sounds almost like a post-hoc rationalization as to what... Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a kind of rationalization. Um, it's, it's sort of hard to break down, I think. And that's the end of our first show in season two of Who Cares? What's the Point? Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes if you did like the show. I'm sure you did. It really helps other people to find the show and helps us as a show too. Um, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. We're easy to find. At Saab is my personal Twitter name. Uh, and you can send us email at contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. So until next week, please enjoy the show and check out the back catalogue too. Who cares? What's the point? Thank you.